I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. And I always get quite excited when I come across a fashion designer from Melbourne or even Australia because uh, the great fashion designers are actually quite few and far between. I'll probably get into trouble for that. But I do think when you see talent, you notice it quite quickly. And I saw... Um, Sam Fisher's first collection, his graduate show at RMIT, where he trained many years ago, and then he disappeared. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Sam, there are always a few standouts in every year, and you studied fashion at RMIT, and you presented a very edgy collection. I think it was at St Kilda. It was in St Kilda, wasn't it? Yep. Rosemount uh, Fashion Week, yeah. And uh, tell me about it, because it was... It was a very strong look. The mm. models were masked. Yeah, that's right. So I'd worked with a, a hair artist, I suppose would be the best way to describe it. And so we'd created hair pieces that were for the face and body as well as, as, well as the, the hair. Uh, but I suppose the, the main direction with that collection was, was the idea of deconstructed tailoring. So it was very strong tailored focus. And then pulling on more twisted and knotted elements so really breaking down what kind of what that means and garment typology and that sort of thing yeah and then surface treatment and it must be difficult Sam when you present a collection as strong as that and probably for some of the your fellow students where do you go next and I remember you did start from memory you did start your own collection Sam Fisher you got into some pretty good stores people like eastern market to start yeah, with yep, yep so you probably thought you were on a run and that would mm. be it so what happens well I, I i'm not sure how common or uncommon my story is but i think what tends to happen especially in this country is if an opportunity arises abroad then it's a really big question mark in terms of your career trajectory and that's exactly what happened for me so I'd presented that collection and that was then stocked in Eastern Market. So the following season, I presented a collection off my own back uh, in Sydney. And so the idea was just to keep keep on... Wholesaling. Wholesaling, exactly. Yep. So again, sort of quite high-end avant-garde pieces to the likes of Eastern Market and left. We had some pieces in there in Gertrude Street. Um, but I had an opportunity to show a collection in Italy and so then it becomes a question of do I stay in Melbourne and continue doing doing what you do in Melbourne or do you go abroad and try and get some more experience? What was the Italian connection? So I'd done a competition in, um, in New Zealand, in Dunedin, uh, and as a result of winning that competition, I was invited to another competition in Italy, in Gorizia, Middle Moda, which is a big international fashion con competition. Um, so that was, they then invited me across and I showed a collection there. But, but really, I suppose for me, the question was, do I go to Europe with the, with the aim of trying to, to get work and further experience or do I go there and come back and just continue on the, that trajectory, the current tra trajectory? And, and the draw from, from Europe is just so strong and it, it really wasn't a question for very long. So I, I went to Italy, did the competition, spent a little bit of time traveling through Europe. I to toyed with the idea of doing a master's in Amsterdam, 
but ended up in London as one does. And then, yeah, the rest is sort of history in terms of Westwood. and, and You got a sort of position with Vivian Westwood, who everyone would know. Yes, yes. So I... Uh, you just uh, apply or you just turn up? Yeah, a little bit of both and persistence. I think you've got to have some nous in these sort of situations. I'd had some contact with Vivian's husband, Andreas, um, as a result of them doing an international retrospective, which was in Canberra, I think, in 2003 or four. So we'd had some communication, and then basically I, I managed to get an interview with Andreas. He looked at my folio, and a couple of weeks later I had a job in, in Gold Label as a pattern maker. Then I was lucky in that it was a circumstance where a number of staff members left, and so then I kind of became Vivian's right hand for for a bunch of years, which was an astonishing situation. For four years. Four. Yes, yes, yeah. Amazing, because, you know, a lot of graduates would probably be just thrilled to be, you know, arranging the threads on the table. So to be... <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't want to go in too much into personal things about Vivian Westwood, but I think she's a good story. Several books have been written on her. Mm. She's been mm. knighted. Yeah. Um, I mean, from your, you know, perspective, what did you learn from Vivian? Uh, my, it's hard. It's a big question. But. Uh, it's actually, in fact, the way I practice, the way I de see design, everything has radically altered since that experience. One of, one of the main things, and this is a very deep part of my practice now, mm. one of the main things I learned in Europe is the, the kind of the historical tradition of avant-garde in terms of fashion design in Europe all stems from Madeleine V&A at the turn of the century. So this, this idea of draping, working on the stand, finding form through your connection in a very real sense with the fabric and the body. And that's a practice that doesn't really exist in this country, in Australia. It's when I left RMIT, all of my experience, my training was flat pattern making. So very much conceiving of an idea, whether it's an ideological concept or sketching a design and then producing kind of a series of blueprints or patterns as they're called and then making garments whereas Madeleine V&A at that time at the turn of the century 19th 20th century away from corsets she was the first person to start working with fabric on the bias mm -hmm. and had a very uh, strict methodology that she would follow in order to to generate what was at the time extremely avant-garde pieces and change the course of history and so Vivian fundamentally adopts that process as do most fashion houses in Europe and to engage with and then work with and what I would now say have a level of mastery over that practice is just a fundamental change and I think when you look at other disciplines I mean designers like Ray Kawakubo or Junior Watanabe it's it's really obvious that that way of practicing um, but even if you look at architecture, the likes of Gary, and there are people who are working outside the box and really changing the parameters of, of what can be done in three-dimensional space. And I don't think that comes from standard blueprints and CAD drawings and that sort of thing. And, and that, for me, was a huge shift, huge shift. It must have been extraordinary. I mean, look, just getting up in the morning and seeing these wild designs mm. before it hit the catwalks months yep. later yep. and knowing where her mind was going would have been exhilarating, I imagine. Absol uh, 
I was really fortunate in that the time that I was there, especially for the first three years, Vivian and Andreas didn't have assistant designers. Rather, that role would be placed on the head pattern maker, which was me. So my role was lead experimental pattern maker for, for Vivian Westwood Gold Label. And so Vivian would come to me with some small scrap of fabric or some twisted thing and just say, let's see where this goes. And there was, so there was a huge level of trust and... Yeah, it was really just finding shape and driving styles and very much a design process that you were developing. So, um, Sam, making a decision to come back to Melbourne must have been quite difficult because, you know, Mm. fashion's fairly small here. It's not, you know, and fairly conservative in the main. And, you know, while you can still use your draping techniques, you know, people aren't going to, you know, say, oh, we like pattern making – you know, the the sense of leaving Vivian Westwood must have been quite difficult. Yes and no. I think everything runs its course. You become fairly aware, especially earlier in your career, where you want to take your career. And you're also aware, when you're in any scenario, just what the limitations are. So the next step for me in that company would have been having Vivian's job, which, of course, <laughs> is not going to happen. Well, you wait 10 years. Well, yeah, or, or 20. Um and so I kind of felt that ceiling on the top of my head and I had spent enough time there. I was also starting to see quite a lot of change in the way that that business was operating, which is fine. But I just thought it's it's time for me to either get other experience or start driving my own, my own styles. I think one of the things that, that one realizes, especially designing for others, and when you've come from your own practice to then design for others, it's it's a really big step to engage in their thought process and be, because your role is to be inside their head, to do, to think in the way that they would think. And so after being in that space for many years, there was this sense of uh, potentially intrigue as to what I would be capable of. So there were a couple of different options on the table. We were looking at New York, um, and then for family reasons and children and lifestyle, we thought, let's come back to Melbourne and see what happens. Um, the, the idea, so my partner and I, my wife and I, um, the idea was to come back to Australia, spend a few years working for other people to just get the roots back into the industry before we started our own, my own practice again. So you started up Tanner and Teague. Yep. Uh, there's no Fisher in it. So Tanner and Teague must be someone else. Yeah. So, uh, my wife, Kylie, they're our mother's maiden names. So my mother's maiden name is Teague and Kylie's is Tanner. So they're, it's, yeah, it, it, it's a name that works really well. When we came back to Australia and I was working for the likes of Scanlon and Theodore, I worked in Sydney for Willow for a while, our idea was not to contribute to men's and women's fashion because there's just so much of it out there and the idea of trying to trying to re-educate people as to why they should buy our clothes instead of other people's wasn't something I was interested in doing at all. So we developed a children's label. We had had some little ones on the way. And and the label then was Tanner and Teague, which is sort of a fun name, and it all all seemed to work really well. But it just just went. So six months into, into making collections for kids and people would 
demanding adults versions and that's pretty much where the label was born sometimes it usually starts the other way around exactly yeah <laughs> adult yep. clothes start like elena dawson and then yep. everyone wants elena dawson's children's wear mm. which is horrendously expensive and then you mm. see the little mini versions yeah so yep. this is the other way around exactly yep and i think part of the reason that our pieces especially initially were so alluring because the premise of, of what we were trying to to place in the kids in the kids kind of market was really unisex nothing to kind of so color palettes were all really subdued the cuts were really progressive i mean how mm. could i not be doing that and so the idea of, of creating something genuinely innovative and different for children and in in that unisex space and really highly functional pieces and yeah and i think people really really warmed to just uh to the nests that the clothes sort of inhabit. So yeah. Tanner and Teague, which is in <clears throat> Brunswick Street in Fitzroy, yep. homewares, children's wear, and then the first grown-up collection or adult male-female collection that started, is this just starting or is it you've been going a couple of years with that? Uh, I think it's four years now. So we started, we actually, I mean, how, how much of a story do we go yeah. into? So uh, after working in Willow, we ended up, so in Sydney, we ended up moving back to to Kylie's country town where we had a house in Castlemaine. So we launched the label actually out of the back of a plumbing workshop where we could find a studio in Castlemaine. And that's Is Kylie what, a designer too? Or uh, she we so she's a photographer, an architectural photographer by trade, um, but has a really she's worked a lot in production and with you know coordinating shoots, and so she has a very strong graphic kind of vision mm -hmm. and we really pull both of those ends together i was designing pieces she was managing production and and pr and that's very much still how it operates um, we now have a large board we've got two new members on however we started the label in regional victoria um, just doing kids clothes then we moved back to melbourne because it was just we needed to be back in melbourne to operate the business and launched the adults collection out of our north fitzroy studio at that time then we had a store on Smith Street for a couple of years, and that was predominantly adults already. So the transition from Smith Street to Brunswick Street now in Fitzroy, that's when the whole profile has opened up for us as, as a retail business as well as a, a wholesaling fashion. So tell place. us about the new collection or the one that's coming up in March that'll be released. How do you, how do you get people like Vivian out of your head and, and start thinking Sam Fisher? Yeah. Well, it's it's it has been a little while now designing my own pieces. Um, I don't. I, I suppose it was never so much getting Vivian out of my head, but it was one of the things that we used to do a lot. And this took me a long time to understand when I was working at Westwood is that rather than working with sort of themes or you know broad concepts in terms of generating garments, exactly, they were what we talked about as construction systems so you would develop a series of systems ways that fabric would intersect or move or twist and those systems then would be developed into stories or families of garments so i might be working on a system that has a say a particular twist which shapes the body around the fabric around the body in a certain way and out of that idea might come a jacket and a blouse and a trouser and a dress and that's a little capsule in itself and then in a company like westwood which is 
is really interesting way of working, and which is why I think that 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 label is still so relevant to the sort of the fashion spectrum is that fabrication and print is applied to those systems, those families. And and I think what's really awesome about Westwood is you get this amazing clashing sense, this really anarchistic sort of thrown together flavour. And it's because the construction systems and the unification between the the garments themselves and then the fabrication and the styling is something that can be sometimes quite opposing. So you just get this sort of cacophony of of great things kind of happening and jarring. Almost like a Frank Gehry building. Yeah, totally, totally. Just stuff kind of that... And and Andreas would often say, I want it to just look like the fabric's been thrown at the stand, but it works. And that idea, you know, for me coming from a very structured Belgian sort of aesthetic, it took a long time to come to terms with. So now applying that back to my own practice... It's about developing my construction systems, my ways of getting the garments to talk, getting the fabric to move on the body. And that's very much what I teach now at RMIT when I'm lecturing as well. I think that, I think that that way of practicing that conversation between practitioner and fabric and the bodies is really, yeah, that's where you see newness and, and, and real change, and that's why I often talk about the likes of Rei Kawakubo and Junior Watanabe. How difficult is it, Sam, to kind of introduce... How far can you go in places like Melbourne with ideas? Are you conscious that, you know, it isn't London or Europe and there is a limit to how far we can go with concepts, ideas, or are you still fairly brave in terms of the, the starting process anyway? Yeah, um... I suppose the way the label has moved has been quite surprising to me, just how how receptive people are to our styles. And the the fact that we... How ha- would you describe it for people who can't see it? I mean, you can visit the store in Brunswick Street, but how would you... It's fairly... It looks fairly unstructured, but it is structured. Yep. The, the way I... So all the garments revolve around a twist or a drape, so that... That pretty much is a reoccurring theme. However, I think that they are all highly functional pieces. Again, you know, all of our pieces are made in Melbourne, natural fibres, subdued colour palette. But I think the innovation in our pieces is definitely in the cutting and then the fit and the feel of the pieces. And that's that's really important to me. I think, you know, when you exit an institution like RMIT or have been, you know, in the catwalks of Paris, you have a very sort of euphoric idea about what garments can and should represent. But then once you come back to a place like Melbourne, it's it's got to be nuts and bolts as well. The, punk, the pieces have to be really functional. They have to look good. They have to be flattering. They have to serve a purpose. And so it's about really trying to bring those broad, beautiful concepts into really solid hard-wearing, easy pieces. And I, th- I think that there is definitely an edge to our pieces. They're edgy pieces. But, but they're, they're wearable. Totally wearable, yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, Sam, you're wholesaling as well, locally and overseas, or are you focusing on the retail? Uh, both. Home. So we're, we've just started wholesaling as of last season. So we've got a few or a bunch of stockists around Australia and New Zealand, and that's something we're definitely looking to grow. I am looking to try and start stocking abroad 
this probably next season. So getting some positioning, you know, in Paris and New York, that'd be great. Um, I'm really aware of, of baby steps, wanting to make sure that the foundations are there before you, you push too hard abroad. But definitely you have to look beyond Australia. I mean, I, I think that, mm. and even with the nature of our pieces, it's not ever going to be like a Zara or a Gap. You can't have one on every corner and I, I wouldn't want that anyway. But to have key stockists around and then get into the the broader international fashion spectrum, that's definitely where I want to be. Um, Sam, you're also bringing in homewares. Are you buying yeah. them in or designing them? Yeah, uh, more buying them in. Mm-hmm. So that our new retail concept store, it is very much a concept store. So the shift from Smith Street to Brunswick Street, we had quite a small space on Smith Street, and now we've really opened that up. So we've brought new team members on board, um, Cameron Muncy and Sarah Muncy, great friends of ours, but they all also have talents of their own. So within the new space, we've incorporated a small wine bar, which will be opening in the next couple of weeks. It's very much an immersive retail experience. We have boutique accommodation on the third floor. It's two levels of retail. We have a really strong focus on products that, that we don't and can't produce ourselves locally. So we have a great selection of niche fragrances, homewares, Trying to source other people who have a similar ideology, aesthetic, and also way of practicing in other sort of categories, you know, retail categories, yeah. I mean, when you look at stores like Le Calera or Ten Corsa Como, like these great immersive, broad kind of spectrum retail concept stores in, in Europe, that's really the, the model that we're following. Yeah. I mean, um, Amanda Hadida, who started Le Clare, or Le Clare, quite a difficult one yeah. um I, I did interview him and mm-hmm. he i remember he he in the i think he started in the 80s he was really it was his own voice mm. he wasn't worried about he was looking at student work uh, mm. labels like dries van noten that no one mm. wanted at the time and you know and Mulmuster. and so it's interesting people who do have their voice have mm. managed to have that voice consistently yeah. for the last three or four decades. Mm. And the, those stores, I think there's now four in yes. Paris. Yeah, they have such a different voice, each store, and it's... Completely different from Paris. <laughs> it's just... Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's just on its own. Mm. Mm. It really is. But even, you know, the Dover Street Market stores are another beautiful example mm. of, of really immersive sort of retail, having cafes. And, and I mean, the London and New York stores are quite similar in their... their sort of footprint but i think just that looking out everyone bangs on about how retail's dead you know yeah. bricks and mortar is dead and but it I, gets I under your skin a bit because i think if the experience is there people exactly. will want to exactly go in and enjoy it mm. and creating i think you've got to create a reason for people to come in it's not enough to just open the door and have clothes you need it, it needs to be like a hub you come there to see to, to see kind of what's good or, or make it your own space and and particularly with your clothes, which are very draped, um, mm. then I would have thought people who were really interested in this type of look need to try the garments on rather than looking online because online it, it just can't resonate the same way it does as actually touching and trying on and seeing how it moves. Yep, absolutely. Yep, that is absolutely the case. Mm. And the majority of our online sales are sort of repeat sales. I want another one in a different colourway, something like that. Mm. But But creating that that conversational space in a retail context is very much what the story is. Mm. Um, 
So, Sam, you're doing two collections a year? Or yep. That's men's, women's, children's. Yep. So that yep. must keep you pretty busy. Busy, very busy. Yep. And and as well, when you have your own space, you can be dropping in new pieces and testing things as you go. So, I mean, it, it was a really big shift for me going from Westwood, which is two very strong collections a season, to then working for, from what they call vertical retail operators, the likes of Scanlon and and also I was designing for Husk uh, for a year and a half previously. Um, when you're stocking your own stores, it's just monthly deliveries. And so now being in the wholesale space as well, creating that strength into quite separate collections, it's really nice. It's nice to be able to, especially as a designer, to be able to be immersed in your in your practice for a certain amount of time and then pop out of it, you know, and get mm. some perspective and then do that again rather than just constantly grinding away, yeah. you know, spitting things out month to month. So, Look, I think we'll be hearing a lot more from Sam Fisher in the years forward. I'm delighted to have re-engaged after a number of years. I remember mm. interviewing you just after your graduate collection and I remember going, oh, my God, <laughs> stand out. Um, and it is lovely to see that, you know, uh, there is a future in Melbourne for fashion because, you know, especially for for fashion that has a, uh, a unique voice, not just mm. mainstream, you know, copied from overseas. So, mm. look, thanks for coming on the program, Sam. My pleasure. I'm sure I'll be following your career with interest and uh, those who are interested should go and have a look at the 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 uh, new store in Brunswick Street uh, Tanner and Teague so thanks a lot for coming into the program thank you you've been with Stephen Crafty talking design at RMIT University in Melbourne thanks so much for listening